Our firefighters have an obligation to us to be the best, well-trained, well-prepared members that they can be. That's not a one-way street. Us as incident commanders, I owe it to my firefighters, and I love my firefighters. I owe it to them to know my job, to be proficient, to execute, and to pull them out when it's necessary. And the bottom line is, I got to know when that is. I would rather, I'd rather pull you out 10 minutes early than 10 seconds too late. And that's the bottom line. Firehouse Vigilance presents the Weekly Scrap, a podcast dedicated to the never-ending fight against complacency. Firehouse Vigilance, it is Weekly Scrap number 183. My guest tonight needs no introduction. He is the Deputy Assistant Chief, Frank Lieb. He has served on the FDNY since 1992. He is the Chief of Safety for the FDNY's 17,000 employees. His previous staff positions include Chief of Training, Chief of the Fire Academy. He's got degrees, bachelor's, yes, master's, yes. The master came from a place called the Naval Postgraduate School. It's a little bit prestigious. Um, Also a member of the East Farmingdale Fire Department since 1983. He served on UL panels, uh, Firefighter Safety Research Institute, FSRI Study for Coordinated Fire Attack, uh, Principal on the NFPA Technical Committees, 420, 1585, 1710. I could literally spend the next two hours talking about this man's accomplishments, but it is my absolute pleasure to have Frank Lieb on as the guest of Weekly Scrap number 183. Welcome, my brother. Uh, thanks, my brother. Happy to be here. Happy to be joining you tonight. Is there anything specific I missed or anything you would like to add from the intro? No, let's get at it. You know, uh, I just think that I um, I love when when uh, my beginnings in the East Farmingdale Fire Department are mentioned because you should always uh, you should always know where your roots are. My roots are deep and my roots are firmly founded in uh, in the volunteer fire service, which I was introduced from my brother uh, at a very young age. So never forget where you come from. That's for sure. Love it. I absolutely love it. All right. With all that being said, I will head right into uh, quick announcements. One of the things I'm very excited about. Uh, people who know Firehouse Vigilance knows this is this is the uh, the coin anybody can anybody can have a Firehouse Vigilance coin, and I love passing them out. I love trading them for coins. And right up next to this one, this one just came in. This is the blacked out coin, and I'm so excited because the blacked out coin is is a very rare thing that you can only get by being a member of the Vigilantes. They are numbered, they are exclusive, and so I'm super excited. Those are going to be sending out. If you've been a member of the Vigilantes, uh, be excited because they are coming to you. So with all of that being said, let's do the housekeeping out the gate. Uh, sponsors, the OG sponsor of the scrap, the original sponsor of the scrap, the ones that have uh, been around since the beginning, key hose, check them out on Facebook, the hose experts, fast wrench, check it out. Fastwrench.net. man. If you haven't seen the fast wrench, you have to check out the fast wrench. And then there is affordable drill towers. Home of the affordable drill tower and the affordable standpipe prop. Firefighter owned and operated. You can pump and roll using the affordable standpipe prop. The affordable standpipe prop fits through most classroom doorways. You teach standpipe theory on it, and then you roll it out to the parking lot and you pump to it. It comes with six standpipe valves that can be upgraded to PRVs or customized to what you have in your jurisdiction. Call Steve, 844-55-TOWER, or drop an email to info at affordabledrilltowers.com. And then... The mega conference, the conference coming up, it is coming up soon. In fact, it is next month. FDIC International is where the fire service comes together 
Be there April 24th through the 29th at the Indiana Convention Center to learn from the best. See the most innovative products and services from leading companies and recharge your passion for the industry. Register now at FDIC.com and use the promo code SCRAP. So there we go. Sponsors out of the way. All of that done. Let me see what people are saying. Smoothbore Cartel said, so stoked. Good evening. Checking in from Tennessee. Good to see you, Chief. Comes from Gary Mahoney. Steve Kaiser said, hell yeah, let's go. Patrick Worker said, Chief Lieb, Chief Lieb is the best of the best. So we're already setting a high bar. Truly one of the very best in the business from, from Frank Sutphin. Uh, my boy Frank, he's a good guy. Uh, Mahoney said, good to see you, Chief. We've got a lot of hype, a lot of hell yeah, let's goes, a lot of looking good, fellas. That comes from Steve Robertson. Okay, I can't even keep up with all of, <laughs> all of the hype. So with all of that being said, Chief, I like to lead off with the question. I always I always ask the guests, um, what would you like to talk about? Because I'd like to research it and ask intelligent questions. So I always like to ask the guests, you know, what do you want to talk about? And you sent me such a comprehensive list, and I'm so excited because I could re- I could literally say just go nuts, right? But but um I also like to ask my vigilantes, you know, what's a question you would like to ask Frank as he's on this week? And what was really cool is the the topics you sent me lined up exactly with what uh, the, the, the vigilante question of the week came from Jim Platt. He said, with all the recent high-rise fires the FDNY has experienced, has slash are the SOP, SOG changes taking place or coming to be better educated with building construction, wind conditions, and other circumstances that have affected these type of fires. So basically, with all you've been going through, what's the what's the the ramifications and spin out? So yeah, that's a great question. I tell you what, that shows the the vigilantes um, have their their finger on the pulse of the fire service, right? I mean, um, high rise fires. There was one in Montgomery County in um, uh, in Maryland that was a challenging fire recently. You look at not a fire, but look at uh, what happened in San Francisco the other day. They had a couple of windows in the wind condition. There's a uh, there's a video that shows the window falling from like the 42nd floor, right? So you think about that. Think about if there was a fire um, in that building today. Right. We had we had a fire on uh, uh, on the 18th floor in in Midtown today. A second alarm fire. Um, I did not go to that, but um, but we had one. So you you think about that. Our um, that was in a hotel. So the FDNY's high-rise multiple dwelling uh, procedures, um, we've done research with UL and prior to UL with NIST. It dates back to our fire at Vandalia Avenue, where we lost three brothers in 1998. Um, we then did a lot of research, and we adjusted. We have alternate strategies now for when it's a wind-impacted or wind-driven event. What we do know is that um, wind impacts a fire when it's above 10 miles an hour. But it really complicates it really complicates firefighting uh, at, at around 20 miles an hour. So for for us, we have our high rise nozzle, we have our our blanket, uh, we have we would do flanking strategies. We may go uh, we may breach a wall to get to the fire in 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 one of these uh, in one of these high rise type of occupancies. But um, and that's the importance, right? So if you're going to be breaching walls, you you better know your building construction. Right. Uh, some of the newer construction is sheetrock. So it's a lot easier to go through than if you're trying to go through uh, a brick or a block wall, right? So oh, yeah. understanding your construction is important. Um, so, however, the more recent fires that we've seen 
in New York City that have been negatively impacted by the wind have been in private dwellings. Um, and our procedures for private dwelling fires has changed several times over the past couple of years. Uh, and specifically when it when, when we talk about um, cellar fires we, or basement fires, we want to fight the fire on a level attack. We, if there's an exterior entrance, we also want to go to where it has the, the closest entrance point to the, you know, to the fire, not necessarily the front door. Um, but when we have wind blowing, uh, you know, several fires recently, the wind was blowing from the rear of the structure towards the front. And we really have, that's a watch out in the fire service. We right. have to really right. slow down um, and take a cautious approach and try and get to the rear of the dwelling and fight the fire from, you know, with the wind at our back. It's critically important that we that we um, fight the fire with our wind at our back. So, um, so the the long answer to a short question is that we are we are evaluating our private dwelling procedures. They already tell us what we what we should be doing at these fires, but I think we're going to strengthen the language a little bit more to sure. make it where um, that we have the ideal tools, right, the procedures for our firefighters, because you know. Our firefighters are, are incredibly aggressive. And the areas, the, 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 you know, it was a fire um, last Tuesday night, a fifth alarm fire in Queens. It was incredibly windy. And uh, the companies that operated there, uh, 307, 154, 325, 163. I mean, these, these guys are fantastic firefighters. As a battalion chief, I worked with them often. Um, and they had their hands full. And the, the fire started in a couple of garages in the rear. Um, and then and then spread to the dwelling. So they attempted to extinguish fire in the um, the alleyway between the two dwellings, but it was like a blowtorch, and we wound up having several dwellings on fire from the extension. So there right. was there was no good area to kind of go around, like to go around the exposure. You would have you would have had to go around two more buildings over a couple of fences to to get to it. It just it would have been unrealistic. But we have to use the reach of the stream, operate out in front of us, and really take a cautious approach when we don't have the wind um, at our back. Because taking a line, um, when the wind's blowing at you, is taking a line into that area or down that alleyway is, is like trying to take a line up the tailpipe of, of, a, of a car, right? You're just, you know, trying to put water into the engine through the tailpipe. It's just not going to happen when the car's running. You right know, so just kind of understanding, uh, understanding that. So, yes, yeah, so our wind-driven procedures for our high-rise buildings has been um, was adjusted many years ago. Our private dwelling procedures were, but we're gonna we're in the process of reevaluating them uh, right now. Beautiful, beautiful. Which which makes me want to dig in and ask you because I know, man, I know how important SOPs and SOGs and just just expectations are on a fire ground. But when you're dealing with seventeen thousand people and, and how how great is knowing what the shared expectation is with the SOPs, SOG driven decision-making model. I, I don't know if my question is coming across right. Does it make sense what I'm asking? No, it does. And I think, so, you know, size, big or small, right? I mean, it shouldn't matter so much, right? We have procedures, we have expectations. I show up at a fire as a first two battalion chief. My expectation is I know where everybody's going to be. I'm very well-versed at, at all of our procedures. And I could, I could pretty much tell you where everybody's going to be 99% of the time. Now, we also teach our firefighters the why. Right. So they're able to operate in the gray areas. And if they need to make adjustments, they make adjustments. Right. You start finding victims or you see fire spread or stuff that's outside the normal. Right. Then you make adjustments. You know, in New York City, you know, we average around seven fires a day. So we know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. And, you know, we, we know that the baseline procedures are good 
most of the time, right? So um, we know where we're going to find victims. We know who's going to be doing the searching. We know where people are going to be going. And and that's regardless of where you work in the city or what tour you work in. So there's there's no operational differences from one tour to the other, right? I know that some departments that have a, a an A, B, and C shift, there's not a lot of cross-pollinization. We don't have that. Everybody operates the same. And the, the firefighters, my expectation is our firefighters are so highly trained that they're interchangeable, that I could take a firefighter who works in a private dwelling area in Queens and detail him for the tour in Midtown Manhattan, and he will know exactly where he's got to go because he's a professional, he's into his job, and he recognizes that um, every individual, so our procedures are, are written, our procedures are written um, for the, in the team aspect, right? But individuals are given assignments that they have to execute, and if they fail to execute on a fire ground, bad things can happen, and the entire team can suffer. So you you really are only as strong as your weakest link, potentially. If someone does something that's outside of the procedures, you know, someone who 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 vents when they shouldn't, they cut the roof before suppression, whatever it is, right? There's um, they become a they become a problem, and we want to make sure that we don't do that. That's why we have to make sure that we account for and train all all of our members and, and maintain that high bar expectation of our firefighters. No, I love that. I love that. And and I'm going to dig in a little bit because you said that you said it yourself. You, some departments have an A, B, and C shift, and you've heard it. You've I'm, I know you've heard it as you travel and you speak. Is they say we have we have three stations, uh, three shifts, and nine different departments because everybody does it different, right? What what has made it different to where you have that that almost a standard, I guess I should say, or or is it is it just a tradition or is it uh, what can you put your finger on why it is that way? So I think I think there's two things, right? So we're mission driven. We understand the mission. We understand the why, right? We understand what what the why we're doing stuff. So sound practices have sound reasoning, right? And they're not just arbitrary procedures. And you know, we put out a procedure. It'll be tested tonight. You know. Um, at the at the very next uh, at the very next fire, it'll be tested. Um, so um, I think that's a big part of it. And right. we have the cross pollination is that our our firefighters are constantly doing uh, tour exchanges. And the way the the group shot is is that they work with they work with a lot of people in their company. So we don't have that A shift does it one way, B shift does it another way. Um, it, it's it's very different like that because we don't have we're not set up that way. But also, we wouldn't allow that because that would that wouldn't be meeting my expectation of what right. I'm going to see on the fire ground when I get there and they're doing something that's that's not you know that wouldn't be appropriate. Um, they, they would have to at least explain what their reasoning was behind it. They might have a good reason, right? So you're not automatically going to hammer them, but you know it's a learning point for me, right? Hey, you you did this, right? Or you put the apparatus in this position. Tell me what you were thinking, right? Because then that we share that expectation. And I share uh, my leader's intent to that firefighter. I love talking to my firefighters um, at the scene, at you know, after a fire. I love hearing what they did. Hey, man, that was a great move that you got to the rear. That you did this. What were you thinking? Did you think you had victims there? What was the what was going through your mind at the time, right? Uh, and then I tell him what was going through my mind, right? What I was looking for him to do, what transmissions I was looking for from him, right? And then that shared expectation, right? And that gives the firefighter ownership when. When the leader, and and now in this case, I'm talking about a chief officer speaks directly to a firefighter. I mean, they're getting that, they obviously interact with their company officers all the time, and they know the company expectations. But when the chief get gets the firefighters around or to talk to them and do that, that, that makes such a difference. I had so many people early in my career do that. Chiefs would come up to me and ask me, 
what I was doing, what I was thinking. I just say, great job. That matters so much that I do that. I go and talk to the firefighters. It's funny. The officers, they'll see me talking to their firefighters and they come running over, especially because I look for probies. Um, and, you know, I say, hey, was this your first fire? What'd you think? What'd you do? Right. right. I mean, um, because I remember when I was, you know, I remember my first fire, right. And how I felt and to be able to share that with other people. And, you know, that firefighter has a beginner's mindset, right. He doesn't, doesn't have a, he or she doesn't have a lot of experience. Um, and I want to trans, I want that experience, right. It doesn't matter that, that they have one day, one hour, I don't care. That's an ex- a transferable experience to me. Um, and I try and maintain the beginner's mindset. So they may say stuff, right. That I don't even think about, right. And to me, it's, it's like, all right, they may make a very basic statement that may make a ton of sense that I want to capture because, wow, that's a great training point because sometimes you're so right. far removed from that that you forget about that, right? right. I mean, positioning the ladder, you know, a portable ladder level with the windowsill, right? I mean, just basic stuff like that, that, you know, we demand excellence on the fire ground because it matters, right? You put a ladder up, you want to get a victim out of there. If, if you're impeding egress, you just screwed up the whole operation. So all these little things, and talking to the, the newest members of the organization really gets me amazing feedback and, and, and helps me maintain my beginner's mindset. Love it, man. Combine it with the thing you said earlier, never forget where you came from. That's a pretty powerful formula, without a doubt. Okay, are you ready for um, your first question from the audience? I'm ready, man. Bring you, it you on. Never know, you never know what you're going to get. You never know one. what you're going to get on, on uh, when it's live. <laughs> that's for sure. Jody <laughs> Keeler says, hey, has Chief Lee ever thought about moving to texas we need a chief soon oh my god so um man i I tell you what we were talking earlier i have been to texas often um recently and i love it there i've i've taught there multiple times um homer robson from the fort worth fire department just an amazing individual um chief hood in san in uh um in san antonio so hey i i had a conversation earlier today I spoke with um, Troy Clark of the San Antonio, uh, um, Fort Worth, Texas Fire Department. So he connected with me through um, through an email. He he attended a seminar I went to, and he sent me an amazing email, like three pages long after that. Um, since then, he's come to New York. He shadowed me for a couple of days, rode around, learned all the things we're doing to prevent cancer in the fire service and in the right. FBI. So he was just assigned um, in a temporary basis their health and wellness or cancer officer. So I'm going to be helping him with some develop some training for his department. And, you know, after he sent me that email, Homer Robson from their department was still working. And um, he's now since retired. But the relationship building that happens around uh, um, around the country, there's so many great people there. When I was at HROC, there was a couple of Texas firefighters that uh, that were trying to get me to move there to like, you know, you know, come there, but, uh, so many great, uh, so many great people there. Um, I've, I've never had a bad time there, but, uh, definitely a shout out to, uh, my boys, uh, Troy Clark in the Fort Worth and, and, and Homer Robson. And I know I'm, every time I mention names, I wind up forgetting people, but absolutely. Uh, I do. I believe you. I know he's saying no. And, and you, you said, cause we just came back from San Antonio today. You said you had family somewhere down in Texas too, correct? Yeah. I have family there. Yeah. The so roots. when I used to go there, I was there for, um, Last year for the uh, the NFFF had the uh, um, uh, had the Truman Fire Forum there, so I was part of the planning committee for that. So there, I was there for that. Like I said, I get there when they're like, "You want to go uh, here?" I'm like, "Yeah, I'm in." You know, uh, <laughs> they still. So I was promised a um, 
I was promised a tour of the Deem Center. I never got it. Um, I was there two or three times, and I never got it. Um, so that's their new training center that was named for Scotty Deem, who lost his life down there. And I'm, I'm dying to see the facility. I've heard so many good things about it. So hopefully the next time I'm there, um, I'll get a tour of that because that's a great example of of taking a line of duty death and and, and making a positive out of it, right? Remembering our fallen, remembering the lessons that they provide us. And they've done a good job with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, okay. Coming at you with the next one. Kevin Bryan wants to know, Chief, can you please tell us your lesson learned from the deadly high-rise last year, Twin Parks, specifically as an incident commander? A lot, lot there, so you can go any direction. I mean, that, wow, that's, yeah. a, that's a big question. We, we, have, we have a couple hours? Uh, whatever. <laughs> yeah, so um, so many so many lessons learned, right? But um, So first, first off, right, um, the importance of being prepared, right? And on, on that Sunday morning when the, when the bells went off, when I started responding, like the time for pre- preparation was over. Our firefighters either knew what they were going to do or they didn't know what they were going to do. And the job that they did there was exemplary. They, they saved many lives. I mean, we did, uh, geez, 17 people died with, with over 30 in cardiac arrest. You know, uh, we could have easily lost 100 um, civilians there. But um, thinking outside the, the box, thinking the different procedures that you implement um, to get people out, I think an important lesson is for all your viewers, What's your time to task completion, right? So um, how long does it take you to stretch the uh, uh, hose line to the second floor? Forget that. Just take a hose line, stretch it over the back of the rig, stretch it 150 feet, have a positive water source. And once you have water at the proper rate coming out, time it. How long does that take? How about how long does it take you to take a, take a victim out of a house? What's your time to task? And how many people do you need? Do you need one, two, three people? At what point is too many people on one victim too many? Yeah, yeah. Right. So two really good drills. Take take a hose line just out in the parking lot, stretch it 150 feet and hit a target. Once there's water on that target, stop the time. Then go in your firehouse bay and just put a mannequin 100 feet in somewhere. Right. All you're telling the firefighter, here's what you're doing. He's there's nothing in the way. You're just going in. You can even see. I don't care. It doesn't even have to be a blacked out face piece. Just go in, go get the mannequin and bring him out. Just know. That's in a perfect environment where you could right. see nothing right. going on. What's your time to test? It's probably going to be a couple of minutes, right? But most people think, I could do that in 30 seconds. No, you can't. These things take time. So you got to know that, right? So you got to know that to understand. So then how much air do you need? You know, do you have mm-hmm. enough time to how, how far? Now add a blacked out face piece. Now add the other stuff. Now put them on a second floor. Now put a, a baby stroller in the way or a clutter in the way. Add different things. Now add a second victim. Now a third victim. The first two truck, the first two truck at the Twin Parks, Captain Hunt of Ladder 56, they had six victims. Six victims. So forget that for a second. If you have three victims, how are you getting them out? Right. What's your plan? Right? Maybe you have two people. Maybe you have three firefighters. So what is your plan? So if we don't know the data, data drives decision-making, or at least it should, Right. So if we don't know how long it takes us to do something, we're just guessing, right? So we're blind. Um, so start with the basics. How long does it take you to do that? Well, try, try, to remo- try that with one person to, to remove the victim. Then try it with two. Try it with three, right? 
If you try it with four, you'll probably the, the time will really spike because you, you're just wasting resources at some sure. point. Right? Um, and then and then see what the times are. And then and then all right, now we have two victims, whatever, or search rope. Figure out those, and then we could build a model for what for what we need. Right. So is it automatically a second alarm if you have two victims? Well, depending on your staffing, who's coming it, 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 in most places, if you have two victims, that is a second alarm. Right. Because you probably don't have, you know, once once a fire starts producing victims, you probably don't have enough staffing to account for all the different tasks that you need to do. You know, and then you get into what are you doing? Are you doing it simultaneously, concurrently. Right. So all, all of those different things um, matter as well. So whether you're doing it sequentially or simultaneously matters. In, in New York City, I have the staffing. I have 1710 compliance staffing. Um, so I'm able to do a lot of different things at one time. If you're showing up before firefighters, there's, you're only doing a couple of things, right? And right, right. Hopefully, hopefully you're putting water on a fire um, because that's, that's the, you know, the most important thing you can do to save a life is, is put water on a fire. It stops. If we stop the fire, right, then then we're going to create savable, you know, survivable space within the dwelling, right? Conditions are going to get better as soon as the fire goes out, right? So put the fire out or at least knock it down, get in there and find and find the victims. So let's get back to the six victims now, right? Sort of time to task. We're thinking about all that. But now um, what's your removal options? We're going to remove them. So they come in, the firefighter that comes in the front door by instinct wants to go out the front door, Right. You come right. in off the fire escape, you're thinking you might go back out the fire escape, right? You start in your search, and then you end your search at that location. So now you find some victims, and we recently changed our search uh, document, um, our firefighting uh, training bulletins on search, and we wanted to make our firefighters mindful of something we had already known that we did. We just took the language from the UL search study and put that in our document, because yes. at the Twin Parks fire, and what that is is when we're removing the victim, right, Sometimes removing them the way we came in is not the best option. In the Twin Parks fire, they removed one victim by the hall. Conditions deteriorated. So we got to be thinking about two things in the hallway. Thermal conditions is one, right? Um, you get a first degree burn at 118 degrees, no matter whether you're a firefighter or a civilian. Right. We have, we have PPE on, so we might not get our skin burned. But that civilian that's unprotected might. So we have to worry about the thermal insult. But we also have to worry about the toxic insult. Yeah, the, yeah. Yeah, so if it's banked down, right, it, it may not be survivable in there. So for the firefighter, right, he want the firefighter, he or she wants to be low, stay as low as possible from the heat and from the thermal. Also, when we're um, uh, uh, from the toxic, if we're removing the victim, the breathing zone matters, right? So if we're removing them low to the floor, that's why you see firefighters with a webbing. Usually, you see that the firefighter carries a webbing and they um, and they're proficient at tying up a victim to get him out. When they pull the victim out, the victim's head's only six inches off of the floor. Right. That's pretty good, right? So in training, we see this in training all the time. We take a victim. So when you're pulling that mannequin out, right, don't let the firefighter stand at a three-foot level because that's unrealistic. Because now now that three-foot space, we, we might be killing that victim, bringing them through a toxic environment that they can't survive in. So ideally, that time to task, we want to be low, one to two feet off of the ground. And that, that matters how you do it in training. Because how you do it in training is how we do it, you know, when, when we're called to perform. Beautiful. Man. So, so the five of the victims at that, the last point on that, five of the victims were taken out from the window in the front of the building. The, the, the first two truck chauffeur put the ladder to the window and they removed the other victims there. And it took some time, but they got all the victims out 
and uh, I believe all but one of them uh, lived. Wow! No, so that's an amazing. That. That's an amazing story. There's so many stories from from that fire, but preparation, understanding time to task, understanding those type of things are certainly, I think, some of the biggest takeaways for for everywhere. Because you don't, hopefully, God willing, no one ever experiences a fire like that. Right. So there's many different takeaways that you could take away from where, whether you're a five-person department or a 17,000-person department. It doesn't matter. They're relevant to you tomorrow. Mm. And you, did I hear you right when you said there were 30 people in cardiac arrest at one point? Yeah. So we wound up, we transported over 60 people, 32 of them, I think it was, in cardiac arrest. So so here's, here's a question for you. Um, how many people in cardiac arrest can your local hospital handle? Yeah. No. Yeah, mine? Ours this is, is like one, on maybe two. Yeah, maybe you know? two, right? It's all yeah. hands on deck for one, right? We've all been right. there, right? Where you bring a patient in cardiac arrest, everybody's everybody's helping, or the, or the trauma victim from the car accident. Now you bring two, now you bring three, right? Now you stretch those limitations out as far as they can go. Yeah, so we needed we needed over 60 ambulances. So what's your plan? Get me 30, forget 60 a second. How long is it going to take you to get me 30 ambulances? <laughs> no, yeah. Right? So, or, or, all right, so you're not going to get me 30 ambulances, so... All right, then we need medical, medically trained people to work on them at least mm-hmm. until we get the resources there and then have a plan on where we're going to bring these patients because we can't overwhelm the hospital system. But that has to be thought about beforehand. You can't suddenly say, I need 60 ambulances and then I'm going to bring them all to like they have to disperse them throughout the, the, the metro. Yeah. Yeah. So there's got to be a plan. And most most places do have plans um, from what I've seen, which I'm happy to I'm happy to hear that. But, you know, the, the closest hospital is like a mile away. So everybody starts going there. The the walking wounded even start going there. Right, right. right? Because they know the local hospital. So there's a lot of different challenges, um, you know, like that as well. And we see that a lot, like with mass casualty uh, shooter shooter events, where the walking wounded just just show up and overwhelm the the nearest facility. Yeah. So yeah. A, good, a, a really good case study for that is um, the Las Vegas shooting. Right. The Las Vegas shooting is it, it's you can't even wrap your head around it. They had they had close to 500 victims. Right. And they were spread out over a huge area because some people were carrying their loved ones. Some people were going to the hospital. So getting getting containment on on what the actual event is, is impossible. Right. I mean, it takes right. a really long time. And it's just when you start thinking about those, it's, it's remarkable. And unfortunately, active shooter incidents are far too common nowadays. Absolutely. Absolutely. Next question coming at you. And it's uh, Tony Nunez out of Florida. He says, Chief. To caveat off the current question, I know you went over the amount of resources needed for the victims in Pensacola last year. Can you share that with everyone here? Because I'm still astonished, which is right what we're just basically talking about. The sheer number of ambulances required, the sheer number of overwhelming resources, which is right into what we were talking about. Yeah. So and at one point we had, I think it was eight engine companies that were doing CFR duty. Right. So they were just all they were doing, they were doing medical duty. So um, I didn't make the call, but uh, one of the other chiefs, I think it was Chief Fascinelli, um, who's an exceptional fire chief in New York City. Um, he made the call. He told all the fourth alarm engines. He, he disappointed them before they got there. They went over the air and he said, all fourth alarm engines come in only with your medical equipment. Um, and they came in. So we watched at the command post. The We, we watched them doing CPR. We watched the our firefighters and our, um, our, uh, our EMTs and paramedics, the job that they did. Uh, the Sino kits that they were administrating. I mean, we have um, like every battalion. There's uh, there's a whole bunch of units that carry the Sino kits in New York City. That is a game changer for um, for a smoke inhalation 
patient and, ha and how many of them survive. If we administer that early on, the, you know, so the whole system has gotten better and we're seeing more people survive. We rescue people in the New York City Fire Department every single day from fire, every single day. Mm, mm, powerful, powerful. Eddie Robertson says, does the FDNY routinely set up division or group supervisors on high-rise responses? Is it built into your SOPs? And if so, is it done by floors or groups? Is it done by, by floor, geographical, or, or task? Yeah, great question. So a high-rise office building fire, all of the, all, a lot of different um, uh, different positions are automatically automatically staffed. So the, the chiefs that are coming in, like the first four chiefs, all have important responsibilities. The search and evacuation supervisor, the fire floor sector, the uh, um, you know, we'll, we'll put somebody in the lobby, all these different places throughout the building. They're floor-specific based on the location of the fire floor. So our staging area right, would be a couple of floors below the fire floor. Our search and evacuation would be five floors um, above um, on a floor that's not serviced by the same bank of elevators that serves the fire floor. Because we, we don't want the smoke stratification to go onto the floor where we're doing, where we're setting up our search and evacuation above the fire floor. So we want to make sure we have a contaminated free um, location. So, um, and then our high rise multiple dwellings, we have some positions that are staffed, but, but a little bit different. So we have different signals. A 1075 is a working structural fire where you get a certain assignment. Then a, a 1076 is an assignment for a high rise office building. And that gives you that prepackage of all the stuff that you need for all those different positions, search and evacuation, all those other stuff. And then a 1077 is a high rise office, uh, high rise multiple dwelling. So those are all prepackaged positions and every, the dispatch will let the chiefs knowing you're assigned to the safe, you're the safety officer, you're the search and evacuation, you're staging, whatever, whatever position you are. And then the chiefs that are upstairs on doing search and evacuation, they'll switch to a different uh, radio frequency as well. Nice. Nice. So it's prepackaged and, and, and very well built into the SOPs. Yeah. And, and, and everybody, everybody follows that, right? You don't deviate right. from, you don't, you don't dare deviate from, from where you're supposed to be um, in those positions. Yeah. Cause they're critical, right? We need them. We need the assignment covered. Otherwise it's a, it's blown coverage. Right. And you know, um, the receiver that gets wide open and scores a touchdown because, because somebody blows their coverage, right. Leaving a position uncovered. Next thing you know, we got fire extension that no one sees. Right. Or we right. have, um, you know, we have a victim that we didn't find because we didn't, we didn't follow our, our, um, our procedure or process. No. Our process drives our outcomes. Um, you know, not the other way around. Cannot have blown coverage. No, sir. Process dries out because I love that. We'll talk more. Uh, Kyle Romagus asked this, Chief, while participating in the coordination of suppression and ventilation at multiple dwelling fires and the impact of ventilation on strip mall. So it's the uh, the super long names that UL has for their studies. Yeah. Right. Uh, were there any eye-opening takeaways that surprised you during the process? Yeah, great question. So specifically to the taxpayers or strip malls, um, one of the huge takeaways was the um, the overpressurization that we saw. Um, and I remember um, Craig Weinshank, one of the um, rock star engineers for UL, uh, I'm talking to him about the data because I'm reading the data. Um, and basically what happens is, so fire creates pressure, eventually, you know, it, it holds up so much pressure that it's going to, it's going to exhaust it, right? And when it, and in one of the studies, when it exhausted it, we actually it exhausted so much so fast that the pressure inside the front door went to a negative pressure. Um, yeah, yeah. So that was that was pretty um, that was pretty eye opening uh, to me. 
the other the other two parts we we know you can't vent your way out of out of the problem right so um if we continue to put holes in the roof and we're not putting water on a fire we're just going to make a bigger fire right um air to the fire is like popeye spinach and when we when we made the holes bigger um we just saw that right and we wound up with sort of front doors open and we have a roof ventilation cut um basically over the fire right so what we're getting is a um, a unidirectional flow path from the front door um, to the roof, which is the most efficient flow path you could have, right? A bi-directional is difficult because it, it, it's, uh, it's fighting. It's fighting in, itself, in right. That, right. right? Um, so we're getting, that, we're getting that great flow path right up and out, and all we're doing is increasing the volume of the fire. Now, temporarily, right, for, for a few seconds, um, and maybe even a, a longer than a few seconds, if we have the line coming in, right, we're like, oh, this is great. The conditions got better. It looks like it lifted. We get a little right? lift, yeah. And, right. we get, and that's true. We get that lift. But that's temporary. If we don't put water on that fire, right? So, you know, you're the incident commander out front, and you hear the saws going, right? And you see the line still not charged. You're like, all right, now, all right, roof's open. And then you still hear it. Now they're continuing to cut, and we still don't have water on the fire, right? Get, get the towel ladders set up, because if we keep doing that, um, we're, we're not going to be able to put the fire out, right? And that's because of that velocity is just increasing. It's increasing the the, um, the fire, the heat release rate, the energy that's stored in, in today's content is simply different. And um, it's great. We cut that hole in the roof and that line comes in. Well, we have a skylight and we take the skylight and the line comes in and it, and it's coordinated within half a, half a minute or so. Great. We put the fire out and it's great. We go home, no problem. When we delay that and we're looking at a minute, minute and a half, two minutes, we're getting to the point where we're simply not going to be able to extinguish the, um, we're not going to be able to extinguish the fire with a hand light. We can't um, overcome we the see BTUs. that time and time again, not only in the research, but we also see that, um, uh, you know, we see that in real life. So another takeaway from it is um, we saw the fire is very unstable. When it goes into a ventilation limited um, fire, you don't need a lot of water to put the fire out. However, um, when it gets really chugging and going, and we saw that the other day, Philadelphia had a fire in a dollar store. And if you, you know, you saw some of the video of the, of the smoke out the front windows, it was like black fire, right? And we have to understand that private dwelling tactics are different than commercial buildings. Right, right? absolutely. Hose line stretch, what we need, they, they matter greatly. Um, and, um, you know, in, in Philadelphia, the building was gone. You know, that was, that was going to be gone because of what was burning in there. The fire had plenty of air, um, and you know, for us to go blindly in there, right? We could we're going to put ourselves in danger. Or if we utilize um, private dwelling tactics in a commercial structure. So um, those are my those are my big takeaways. I would say from uh, from there. There's so many. I, I love being on. If you if for your viewers, if you have a chance to be on a, a UL Tech panel, it's fantastic. Um, they're lifelong friends that you have from there, and uh, you know, just like today, I told you I was on the phone with other guys talking about tactics and stuff. You know, we do that all all day long. We're doing that in front of the in front of the building at night when we're having dinner. We're um, you know, we're we're talking about tactics. We go back to our rooms for the night, or, or and and people are texting each other about right. you know what they want to see the next day. It's just twenty four seven, just super guys that, and girls that are just so into the fire service um, to make the fire service better. And it's just. Nothing better than uh, getting together um, with those with those people. I love it, man. Uh, from the insight uh, of the tactics to the insight of being on the panel, I love it. Um, 
This one comes from Amanda Miller. Chief, have they ever implemented a stair support group for high-rise ops, a.k.a. pack mules who move equipment up and down stairs? If so, was it feasible or helpful, or did it overcomplicate? No, that's a good question. Um, we don't do that, but the stairways are overcrowded anyway, so there's a couple of problems with stairwell management. The first is, so we designate an attack stair and an evacuation stair. So if it's not an attack stair, everything else is an evacuation stair. So we, may know, we maintain those smoke-free Problem is, if they don't have a two-way voice communication system or stuff like, or, or other devices like that to communicate, the, you know, the residents, the residents or the people who work in the building, they don't know the fire department tactics. They have no idea what an attack stair is. So right. we have to communicate that with that. So if it's the attack stair, we have hose lines going up it. If it's the evacuation stair, we have people coming down it. So what we do, we try and utilize in high-rise office buildings particularly, is that we have people that staff the elevators. And those people will bring the equipment up to the staging area, search and evacuation area, as as time permits within it. But otherwise, everybody's taking their own equipment. You know, uh, I think second alarm companies are bringing an extra SEBA to you know in a high rise office building, so they have some equipment. But everybody's basically um, responsible for their own for their own equipment. Beautiful. Kevin Bryan says, "Let's keep talking high rise. What are your considerations for flow paths and bulkhead doors in high rise?" Well, so that's a great question. My goodness, you got uh, some. Uh, they're throwing them at you, man. They're coming, yeah. like, curving in. Curving yeah, they're in. Good, good questions. Um, well, flow path management in every fire is critical, right? We have to understand the flow path. We have to understand that any openings is going to uh, cause a problem. When we talk about when we talk about um, in, in high rise buildings, we, we also have the stack effect. So depending, which varies depending if it's the summer or the winter, um, and we know that as we go up, right. It's windy. Even if it's a calm day down at, at ground floor, you know, when we get up into, you know, 30, 40, 50 stories, it's windy up there, right? If you've ever been to the top of, you know, Empire State Building or a tall building, and so, it, you know, take, go to your tallest building. Here, here's another drill topic for you people, for your listeners. Find one of your tallest buildings um, and ask somebody uh, to open their window in their apartment and then open their door to the and then open their door to the uh, part, to the uh, to the hallway, and then open the door to the, the stairwell door, and you'll see the difference. The velocity that gets without a fire, right, without right. anything, and the velocity. If the wind's blowing the right way, you'll realize you're like, wow, we wouldn't be able to. If this was a fire, we wouldn't be able to survive that. So what does that mean? Well, we got to compartmentize that and make sure that we either got to control the inlet, right, that failed window. And we have a window blanket that we could put over a window to, 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 to control that or maintain the doors. And that means the apartment door. That also means the, the stairwell door. Because otherwise, we're completing that circuit from the outside, from that bedroom window, you know, from that bedroom window, say, to the apartment door, to the stairwell door. And then if the bulkhead door is open. Now, we may want to do that intentionally. We have different we have different procedures, sequential ventilation. For example, after the fire is out, if we want to ventilate the building. Right. They, make sure we get all the smoke out. We can do that. We'll start at a lower floor. We'll open up uh, a, uh, uh, the bulkhead, open up door, different doors on the, on the different floors and clear the smoke out. We can do that because we, you know, it's, it's physics. Make it, we can move just like we can move the fire around. We can move the smoke around just by doing that. But um, understanding the flow path, understanding just even on size up, right? You go to a commercial building fire, um, the, the, you know, the ventilation profile, what can vent here? Right. 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 If, if I have a ventilation limited fire and I have a one story um, auto 
repair garage, right? There's no skylights. There's no windows. There's a front door, a rear door, and a roll-down gate, right? Yeah. I got three ventilation points. If I maintain that, if I maintain those two doors and the roll-down closed, that fire can't get big. It simply needs oxygen to get big. So if I maintain it, if I maintain that in a ventilation-limited space, I could go in there. So, right, right the natural progression of a fire, right, it, 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 it grows, it goes into the decay stage, then you know, the UL graph, then the fire department gets there and it peaks. Give it some air. Say, right, but the fire department gets there and it doesn't peak all the way because the fire department's now smart. So it only peaks a little bit because we didn't just blindly open the door or right. take windows. We maintained it. So now we have what I call the elongated ventil- the elongated de- decay stage. We could live in that place because the fire's not getting bigger because it can't, because we, we controlled the amount of oxygen. We controlled the amount of spinach that we gave to Popeye. So it can only get so strong. The elongated decay stage. Yes. The elongated. Yeah, the elongated. I love it. I love yeah. it. No, absolutely. Uh, you you answered some of this question already, but Fred Gillespie asked, can you explain the idea of stacking? Because you, you touched on it and reverse stacking in a high rise. And is there a certain number of floors needed for this to occur? Yeah. So, um, so the taller the building, the taller the the, um, the more pronounced the stack effect is. Um, so basically, that hot air rises. So when it's hot outside, um, we could get a reverse stack effect, a negative stack effect, and that's when we could actually we'll see smoke coming down uh, into the structure, uh, you know, coming down the stairwells. So we got to ha- have an understanding with that, um, and, and we do. We have ventilation support groups that we could call in, and we could have them pressurize stairwells to make sure that we uh, overcome that. A lot of the high-rise office buildings, especially uh, newer ones, or actually ones that were built, I believe, under the um, local law four in 1974 or something like that, local law five, that talks about um, high-rise pressurization systems. These these high-rise office buildings have these, so that helps us um, battle the fire and 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 contain the smoke, right? So because we can't just it's not just about fighting the fire, right? It's about controlling the smoke. And making sure that the occupants aren't dying because the smoke is allowed to just go wherever it wants in the structure. Oh, <laughs> uh, man, I'm trying to figure out which question to throw at you because I want to I want to hit some of the topics we were talking about, but I also love the audience questions coming at you. Yeah, stick with the questions. I love it. All right. Uh, I like the up the cup stuff. That's good. I like this one because it ties into what we talked about earlier. This comes from John Eric Johnson uh, down there in Texas again. Another Texas guy. Question. Texas Chief. guys, I'm telling you. How important is establishing standards and writing assignments in the organization? Because we touched on this a lot earlier. But also, can you explain how the operation divisions must work hand-in-hand with the training division to ensure the standard is clearly defined and communicated? Yeah, another good question, man. These are great These are great questions. So um, it's shared goals, shared responsibilities, understanding what we want to do with the procedures, right? I think um, shared expectations. That's what it's about, right? So when it comes to training, so training is your training drives the organization. Training is the cornerstone of any organization. It is the foundational cornerstone. If if you want to operate safely, it begins with training. Operationally, it begins with training. Operations operations could uh, you know the, we know what the operations wants, right? They want the fire out, that, and and they they tell us kind of how they want it done. But it comes down to training. If the firefighters don't know what they're doing. Um, then you're not going to be very good at what you do. So show me a good department. I'll show you a good, I'll show you a department that trains that has training as their, um, as one of the 
top organizational priority. It must be an organizational priority because when it's not, civilians and firefighters wind up getting injured and killed. And the challenge with that, right, is that um, when budgets are tight, it's easy to say, all right, we got to cut. We got to cut somewhere. Right. What do we cut? We have to staff the fire trucks. We have to staff the ambulances. So that gets staffed. So what do we cut? We cut. We cut training. We cut fire safety education. We cut all the things that we'll see down the road. Right. So we don't see the cracks in the foundation when we cut those budgets for several years down the road. But mark my words, the you will pay it back. The savings that, that the, the funding that you cut from those things will will you'll pay it back with dividend down the road. And it's typically in in property loss, in firefighter injuries and deaths and civilian injuries and deaths. It's, you know, um, firefighter and civilian um, injuries and deaths in the United States are lower than they've ever been. Right. So, I mean, one firefighter death is too many. But we have gotten we have gotten to where we are because of our ability to break down the root causes of of these line of duty deaths, train on them and make us a better, more educated fire service. Because guess what? I don't need to learn the lesson of Scotty Deem by losing a firefighter in New York. Yes. Yes. Any more than you need to lose a firefighter somewhere else, learning a lesson that we already learned. Think about bowstring trust construction. How many firefighters have we lost to bowstring trust construction or trust construction yes. or, or firefighters in places of worship? You know, I just read an article the other day about the fire in L.A. Uh, in 2022. There was, they just did an article about how lucky they were that they had people that were, were pinned in, in, in the church fire. It's a fascinating article. And I, you know, I was aware when the, when the fire happened, but I didn't realize that they had maydays and people uh, trapped there. So mm-hmm. it's just these lessons, we need to make sure that lessons in the fire service, whether they happen in New York, L.A., Miami, wherever they are, that those are transferred and the whole fire service learns them. That's the value of the secret list. That's the value of podcasts. That's the value of all of our publications to stay learnable, to make yourself hard to injure and difficult to kill. Beautiful, man. Ah, I, I wish I could uh, give you how many booms, how many truths, how many fire emojis you just got. And someone even said the first time I've ever heard it, but premature max points. And so <laughs> for what that's worth, I'm not sure if that's a, uh, a compliment or not, but absolutely. Um, I want to throw one at you here. Um, and, and because I'm about to break the seal because I'm already, uh, getting ready to give you the scrap and let you run with it. But, uh, but lithium ion batteries, um, there's been a lot going on about them. I want you to talk about them for a minute. Any lessons that you've learned since the symposium? And it came at me from, I want to get the name right because he threw it up here. As I take a break and give you the scrap for a few minutes, I already lost his name. Sorry, but he did ask, uh, stuff you've learned on lithium, uh, ion batteries from the symposium with the amount of effort put into it on your training division and since the symposium and the, just the number that you faced with that being said, I give it to you. It's your show. I'll be back in a minute. All right. <laughs> so with the, uh, with lithium ion batteries, um, the FDNY has had over 200 fires just last year alone. We had over 200 fires involving lithium-ion batteries. Um, just yesterday, we had a second alarm in Queens, uh, well-advanced adv- well fire in a, uh, a bike repair shop. Uh, we're putting a tip from training out on that tomorrow, actually. And we put a tip from training out on that last year, highlighting all the different locations that there are. So once those get going, whether it's one 
and then it, it uh, one goes into thermal runaway, and then it winds up uh, spreading to other batteries and other devices that are there. It becomes a, a very, very serious fire in short order. But when we're talking about procedurally what you need to do, it's it's pretty straightforward. Employ the same tactics that you would. Go there, go to the fire, get after it, do what you got to do. Make sure you have all your PPE on, um, even during overhaul, right? So we talk about mask usage. You should have your mask on during overhaul. Um, this is just another reason because we can have failure of the batteries um, later on. We had one where 30 hours later, um, some of the little cylinders um, uh, reignited. So, um, so get in there. Before we overhaul, we want to find all of them. So the, the cylinders, the batteries, they're basically, they look like AA batteries. And they're in a plastic enclosure. And when they explode, uh, it shatters and they go all over the place. So we can't tell if it's, uh, that was fast. Um, so we can't tell if they were spent already, if they have no energy, or if they're still storing energy. So stored energy in these batteries is very important. Again, they look like AA batteries when they're not in their plastic housing. So we want to capture them all. We want to find them all. Use a shovel or something. Don't use your hands. We should not be picking up these batteries with our hands. You can simply put them in a five-gallon bucket. You can put them in, in a kitchen sink. You can put them in a bathtub, put some water in it, put them in there at least temporarily. Um, and then we want to get them outside the building. Don't throw them out a window because then that, that, that insult from it falling can cause it to fail. Um, lower that bucket, maybe using a rope to get it out of, that, out of the building. Do not go into an elevator with, with lithium-ion batteries. That's, that would be bad news as well. Um, so what we're seeing is some of the UL studies have shown that um, – one point, like 1.7 seconds after the after they start to uh, fail, the room is flashing over. So you talk about like legacy fires, modern content, like the fire environment is constantly changing. And now batteries is another game changer, right? These lithium ion batteries. So, um, so basically, that's in a nutshell, fight the fire the way you would. Make sure we collect the batteries before overhaul so that we're not burying them. Make sure we're more collected. Put them in a five-gallon bucket, something in water, or overpack them. We overpack them in New York City, and then get them out of the structure. If you're in a rural area, you know it's not a big deal to leave them to leave them outside somewhere in the backyard. You, in New York City, you can't just leave them on the street. It's a it's a very different it's a very different problem. So we have uh, people that come and take them away. Um, so when it comes to batteries, that's the that's the best advice to um, to give you on that. Um, we see that the, a battery that's fully charged has a lot more stranded energy. Stranded, stranded energy is, is what caused these things to uh, explode. The UL studies, they showed that they, they blew out the windows in a couple of demonstrations that they did. And our folks from the FDNY were down there, Chief Mike Mays, Captain um, John Cassidy. Um, we have so many good people in our hazmat division that have been working on this. Battalion Chief uh, Joe Loftus, Dan Murray. These guys have been putting so much work into this. Um, and uh, they've been partnering with other departments around the country and just learning all we can from. Right on. from yeah. Hey, this and I don't. Stand down is going to be uh, with the MIA batteries. They just announced that uh, yesterday. The National Volunteer Fire Council and I Chiefs and all, they just announced that yesterday. Huge, huge, huge issue. Absolutely. And uh, you guys leading the charge on what you've been doing with it. Um, and I, I wanted to say that I don't, I don't, I trust you immensely because I don't leave a lot of people in charge of the scrap that often. That often, <laughs> I, uh, I think I was a good steward of the of the show. Absolutely, there is no doubt. Amanda Miller said, "Has the FDNY or anyone used uh, those those new huge fire blankets tarps on these? Have you used any of the tarp type 
suppression on them? No. So, I mean, we don't have any of those. I, I know that our hazmat division had looked at them, um, but, but we don't. So I know those tops are used in uh, Texas stadium. Talk about Texas, right? So if they have a, if they have a dumpster fire or something, they'll put that over the top. They'll put it over the dumpster just to get it out. But we don't, um, we don't use those currently. Okay. Right on. Uh, Chief, what would you say is the value? This comes from Luke Bergdorf. Bergdorf. Uh, the value of having people assigned to rigs, and is there any value in guys rotating from engine to the ladder? Oh, sure. It's definitely so cross pollinization. Learning all, learning your craft, learning all the different positions is definitely uh, there's definitely value to that. Having people assigned to the company is is vital as well, right? So I like having obviously assigned offices are important. Senior firefighters are important. Um, having assigned chauffeurs that know the area, know the response area, that's critically important. And the FDNY, our new firefighters will go on rotations. They'll go on rotations to, if they're in an engine, they'll go work in a truck for a specific amount of time. We have another rotation program where, you know, maybe you work in Brooklyn and then you'll get a detail for a year to the Bronx. So all that cross-pollinization, younger in your career, so that way when you have a detail um, that, that you're proficient at any position, wherever you could go. Um, so our chauffeurs, especially engine chauffeurs, tend to become more specialized and they become to drive the sh- you know the engine all the time. But most of the other positions, um, they rotate around uh, pretty often, even though we all have our, our favorites. Sure, sure. Love it. All right. Um, number John Velez Jr. wants to know, Chief, what is the number one priority of the engine company? Water on a fire. That's, I mean, I think that's obvious, right? Water on a fire, right? Obviously, I, was, to, I love the answer. So, yeah. Yeah. So, um, um, yeah. So, they're obviously also protecting, um, they're also protecting the truck company that's searching, right? So, um, it's, I, I think that's an important consideration. Um, and uh, I'll tell you what, one of, the, one of the best lessons I ever learned um, was one of my first really good fires, Kings Highway Avenue D, 1993. Um, I don't show my age a little bit there. And um, this fire is roaring. It's had a whole bunch of windows. And um, I had been told, um, yeah, you don't, don't, put your, don't put your ear flaps down. Hoods were kind of new. They're like, you know, so you want to feel the fire. You want to feel the heat. And no one is time to get out of there. So um, I'm like, all right. So here I am. I'm a brand new firefighter. I'm up there. And um, we're going down the hall. And so I don't have, I have my flaps up. I have my hood down. And my ears are burning. I can feel my ears are burning. Um, and uh, so I'm a new guy. So you think I turn to the captain? Hey, Cap, I'm burning up. Let's get out of here. No. Uh, I'm on the engine. I have the nozzle. That's not up to me. Plus, we have people searching. So what I became was I became the weak link, right? Because I didn't properly use my PPE gotcha. because I got some really bad advice from somebody. So I'm sitting there. I got the nozzle. It's open. I'm working my way down the hall and I'm trying like mad to get my flaps down. And I eventually, I eventually get my flaps down. I'm playing with them. I get them down, but it was too late. Right. right? And the, the, the heat is radiating off of the walls. Um, and I'm like, man, I know I'm I'm burnt up. I know. Um, and after the fire, we we're, we're going down, and I run into this guy from Rescue Two, this old old salty dog, and he's like, uh, "What'd you think of that kid?" I was like, with my wide eyes wide open, uh, you know, wide, old starry eyed. I'm like, "Wow, that was that was crazy. Uh, that was something. I said, that was great." He goes, "Well, 
that was like a 10 year fire. You go to 10 years and not see one like that. And I'm thinking, thank God, because that was crazy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So he was right. But I was the weak link. And from that point forward, you will never, you will never find me not ready to go, not with all my equipment on, with my waist buckles fastened, with my hood ready to go, um, because I don't want to be the weak link. So take a look. Take a look at. Um, so when I was in Squad 270, we prided ourselves in always being ready to work. And you won't find pictures of, of, of the guys that I worked with and the girls I worked with. You won't find pictures of us not ready to go to work. We were always ready. So, and you could, you know, a lot of the special operations companies, the rescues and the squads in New York City, most of the time, you'll see those guys, they are ready to go. Hoods on, straps are down, waist buckles, everything. They are ready to go. They are, and the incident commander sees that. It goes, that guy's ready. He's ready to go to hell. He's ready to right. go to battle. He's ready to do whatever he's got to do. Um, and that matters. And there is zero reason there is zero reason not to be not to be ready to not to be ready to go to work, um, because, um, and I guess we'll we'll get into this later maybe. But when it's when we talk about safety and our ability to be aggressive and, and do stuff, if if you become trapped, if you if you have your if you don't do your waist straps right, so I don't know if you picked it up yet, but that's a pet peeve of mine. I can't stand when firefighters don't take the um, a second and a half to do their waist strap right. And then you go in and you get caught up on a bicycle, right? And now we have to get you out. So are we aggressive? Are we still aggressive if I have to then get you out? No, we're no longer we're no longer aggressively fighting the fire. We're right. not aggressively trying to get you out. We're or, reactively going in, yeah, dealing with your issue. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. So now the fire is getting bigger because you didn't prioritize your safety. That you didn't make yourself hard to kill and difficult to injure, right? It's that simple. You know, somewhere along the line, um, this whole, like, we can't be aggressive and safe, that's that's nonsense. Um, the best aggressive firefighters know how to operate safely and efficiently on the fire ground. That means having a thermal imaging camera that's ready to go, knowing how to use it. That means knowing how to read smoke. That means having your waist straps ready. That means having your hood up. That means having a flashlight that works. I mean, those things don't impact your ability. And then get in there and get after it. And guess what? Occasionally, occasionally, the best practice is putting water in from the outside. Deal with it. That's just the facts. To say that we're always going to do this or we're never going to do that, that's that's nonsense. Um, if you have experience, you know that that's nonsense. Because there's times where you're like, I want the fire out and I want it out now because I got guys that are and girls that are in a really bad position in there and I just want the damn fire to go out. Um, and at cellar fires in private dwellings, um, I'll have the first line go inside. I'll tell them, go to the side door. Fire's right in there. Second line comes, and I'll tell them. I said, listen, they got about 10 seconds. If they don't put that out, I'm pulling them out, and we're putting water in this window right here. 10-4, chief. It's not a debate. It's not a debate. Because I want the fire to go out. Because at the end of the day, I want all my firefighters to go home. Mm -hmm. So we, we've the, the whole message of everybody goes home, right? So... Um, I know that some people have, have I've seen the memes for everybody goes home but the homeowner. That's, that's nonsense. So if you've ever been on the scene where a firefighter has been seriously injured or killed, well, you ever been the incident commander, when any of those things have happened, you recognize that um, one serious injury, one death is, is one too many. Especially when you got to go and go tell that person's spouse, 
yeah, I'm sorry, Mr. Or Mrs. So and so, that your 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 uh, husband, um, yeah, he he uh, he died in a fire today. Um, there was no one in the structure. There were three holes in the in the floor before we got there. Um, or it was a vacant it was a vacant where it was a vacant uh, taxpayer. Um, but you know, he was he was in there doing what he loves. No, I don't want to tell. The, I don't want to do that. I'm tired of of seeing people get um, seriously injured, seriously burned. We'll get killed. Um, so um, the goal is zero fire deaths, right? Um, I understand that we're going to lose more firefighters, but that doesn't mean that they become acceptable or that we should say that's okay, right? The goal is that we all go home. And we do that when we operate safely, efficiently, and aggressively. They, it matches. The best firefighters that I've ever worked with, and I've been blessed. I've worked with some great firefighters that have been incredibly aggressive, but they understand where safety fits in to the equation. Because guess what? They don't all firefighters want to go home at the end of the tour safe. Right. I don't know any firefighter that says I'm going to work today and I'm going to get hospitalized. Absolutely. Right. I'm going to, I'm going to burn myself up pretty good today. That I, That's what I want to do. That's nonsense. Right. And that's our job as incident commanders, as chief officers, as safety officers to, to kind of look at that. And I look at, to me, I, I call it the, the risk tolerance pyramid. The higher up on that pyramid you are, right, the less risk tolerance you have. Firefighter, he, he's all about risk, right? But it's our job to pull them back sometimes. We're lucky that we have firefighters that they just want to go, 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 go. That's great. Right, right. It's our job to harness them. And at the top of that pyramid, right, sits the chief or the incident commander and the safety officer. We have to look at the fire through a different lens to make sure that we fulfill that obligation. Our firefighters have an obligation to us to be the best, well-trained, well-prepared members that they can be. That's not a one-way street. Us as incident commanders, I owe it to my firefighters, and I love my firefighters. I owe it to them to know my job, to be proficient, to execute, and to pull them out when it's necessary. And the bottom line is, I got to know when that is. I would rather, you know, we had a fire in Brooklyn a couple of weeks ago, and, um, um, uh, uh, and I had to stop a couple of actions that I didn't think were that safe. And I'm thinking like, this was a, a storage. This was a storage building for a lumber yard. There was nobody in there. The people knew no one was in there. And I'm like, um, and I was certain this wall was going to collapse. This block wall, the building's 70 years old, whatever. And um, I, I told guys, I said, uh, this, this wall is going to come down, maintain the collapse zone. A couple of times I, I had to um, uh, say it a little forcefully to maintain the collapse zone. And guess what? The wall never came down. So I'm wrong. So what? They still knocked the building down. It still became a parking lot and nobody got hurt. I'd rather pull you out 10 minutes early than 10 seconds too late. Mm. And that's the bottom line. And you have to know that on the scene of a fire, I got your back because that's my obligation to you, to your family, to your loved ones, to everybody else that's depending on you and your income and for you to come home. Because if you're dead or injured, um, you're not providing for your family anymore. And that is, I lose sleep over that, um, how we could be better, how we could be better versions of ourselves, how we could be a better version of the organization that involves tracking small failures, making sure that we're looking and evaluating stuff um, continuously. The FDNY, we change our procedures on average twice a month. Sometimes it's just adding a word or a sentence, but we're always changing stuff to make it where, where we can operate better so our firefighters can save lives like they do every day and 
go home at night because they did not sign up to kill themselves or injure themselves or get cancer or any of these other things, right? We didn't sign up. We understand that that's the risk, but that's not the expectation. Right. The expectation is that incident commanders and safety officers are going to keep their people safe, and that's my job. Holy crap, Chief. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, you make it so hard because I wanted to sit here and shout. You, you gave me so many sound bites. Like, I don't know how many how many sound bites and truth bombs you can drop in one five, uh, like 10 second clip. Um, the questions, and this is this comes from Kyle. Kyle is my curator. Kyle Ramaga, Smoothboard Cartel. He said, the questions are consistently coming in. If you have topics you or he wants to cover, I would move there. So <laughs> he, he put that in like 47-point font so that I would read it. Um, <laughs> but no, absolutely. Uh, specifically, I, I know I know this is near and dear to your heart, safety and aggression. And you just, you just ripped into it immensely. Is there anything you want to add to it? Do you feel like you covered it well there or... No, I think we I think we uh, we covered it well. It's just for the firefighter to understand that that's the, the chief's job is to ensure, right? And I've had firefighters tell me like, you know, we, we you know we we were going to get it, I, and I'm like, yeah, I know, you know what? But I, you know, tell me what you want me to tell you, your widow, right? And uh, understand our shared goals, right? Our shared goals, our shared expectations. That's critically uh, that's critically important. And you know, we and listen. If we don't cover all these things, you just have to have me on again. Fair enough. <laughs> I don't think anybody is going to argue uh, that that happening whatsoever. I love the questions, love the questions uh, uh, that are coming in. I can talk tactics all day, all night long. I love it. Okay. Okay. Hey, brother. Challenge accepted. We'll keep going. Joe Gavita wants to know. This is this is an easy easy transition. What does aggressive mean to you? Being smart, well trained, understanding understanding the risk, understanding the reward, and just being you know understanding right. So. We should be searching a vacant factory very different than an occupied private dwelling at two in the morning. And I think understanding that matters, right? And if you're good at your craft and understand what the mission is, um, you can be good and aggressive and understand there's times to be aggressive, there's times not to be aggressive. We're not always dealt the hand that we could win. And we have to recognize that. Mm. Sometimes, sometimes we're just, you know, the fire's out every window, right? And there's reports of people trapped. Are we are we are we putting on our, cro- our close proximity suit and going walking in the flames? No, we're putting the fire out. And now, and in that case, right, it means we're putting in before we go inside. So that matters, right? We're just it's just not doing things just for the sake of doing them, not blindly doing them. That's what aggressive is. I think it's being smart and aggressive um, at the same time. Beautiful, uh, Chief. Uh, Alfred Odea wants to know, can you talk about how important drilling with your company is? Well, make every day a training day. Um, is, there's a lot of memes on social media about you could tell an officer that cares about, cares about his firefighters because he drills. Um, and if I want to know the time to task to my company, well, I, I should drill with them. I should know the expectations of my company, right? I should know their, I should know all of my firefighters' strengths. I should know their weaknesses. And I do that with drilling. And, you know, so when I was in special operations, we would have, we would put different positions like for for fine space or high angle rope rescue. And some guys were very good at ropes. So they would be the guy that would be tying it. Right. So just understanding that, and that's critically important to training with your people. Um, When I was a battalion chief in battalion four, six, 
we had an escalator fire. And then we were drilling on escalators. I got some steps. We were training on it with all our companies. With um, I got enough steps. I gave one to Squad 288 because uh, they're one way out of quarters. Rescue 4, they're another way. Uh, ladder 136 and 138. Um, they're the other companies that are uh, with me. These are great companies into the job uh, in the Corona and Elmhurst area, Queens. And we were drilling on it. They had all these different ways that they would, how you'd cut a hole in an escalator step, how you'd chisel out the side if, if someone was caught. Nine days later, we got a call for a female with a foot caught, caught in an escalator. And we knew exactly what to do. And she was never admitted to the hospital because we knew what we were doing. And we didn't get anybody injured as well. So um, as a company officer or even as a firefighter. So if, if you have a, a slug uh, or a mutt as a company officer and he's not drilling, drill anyway. Drill without him because you'll be the best version of yourself. And he'll either get with the program or she'll get with the program or or move along. But that should not be an excuse for you not to drill. Slugs and mutts are not an excuse to not to drill or to love the job. Do it anyway because you want to be best prepared because when the bell goes off, it's up to you to be the – you're the one that's got to perform. Beautiful, man. Uh, this one's coming at you from Chief Dina Ali. All right, are you ready? All right, I'm ready. As a BC, when you arrive, what are your first act, first few actions – how do you decide where to set up command? What dictates if you are watching the fire behavior slash building conditions versus making a, a command post? Uh, Dina's good. Dina's a fairly new battalion chief. She's uh, at a rally. She's good. Uh, yeah. yeah, she was just up in New York uh, recently. I got to spend some time with her. So uh, thanks for joining the show tonight, and thanks for the, for the question. So great question. I'm always watching the fire dynamics of what's going on in the building, right? That's, um, that's critically important. But I'll use... What, uh, what my good friend Tom Richardson, um, what he used to do, he'd pull up at a fire, he would look at the fire, he'd turn around, he'd put all his gear on, and then he'd, he'd be listening, right? And unless something crazy was going on, he would let every, you know the firefighters know what they're doing. We're a well-choreographed machine for the, for the first bunch of minutes at a fire. Unless, unless we have a collapse, victims, fire extension, those type of things, they're pretty good with, with all of that. Okay. I'm, I'm, looking at, I'm looking at the building. Then I turn around, and I'm ready to command the fire. Um, I know where everybody's going to be. I'm, I'm gathering information. Um, the command post, I'm going to wind up going somewhere towards the towards the front of the building. As a battalion chief, I always get accused of being a mobile or roving command post. Um, uh, Deputy Chief Mark Ferran would always tell me, he's like, Frank, you've got to be still. i got to know where you are when I get here. But I'm like, yeah, but I wanted to do a 360. I wanted to see the other side. I wanted to quick get inside and see what's going on in there. Um, it's, it's just I'm making sure I get rid of my blind spots. And making right. sure that I've done it a good size up. I'm getting information from the rear. So um, I'm setting up in the front in a vantage point where I can see everything that's going on. I'm, I'm, the transmissions are critical, right? The cadence of the fire, making sure that everything's going according to the plan. You can tell, right? Okay, we're, we're making progress. We got, we're, we're opening up. We got the line stretched. Um, we, get the, we got the searches underway, as opposed to other transmissions that that are indicating that things may not be going. There's a delay in the hose line. We have a cluttered condition. We have fire extension. We can't find the fire, right? I mean, those those are pretty important transmissions. Right. Right? Um, and then, so the other thing is, um, and I don't think I answered part of the question yet, but in New York City, our 360, right? So it's, not, it's usually not an individual doing that, right? So if we're in Manhattan, a 360 for one individual could take you 20 minutes to walk around the city block um, or 
Um, it could be an, an attached row of private dwellings. But we have people that are giving reports back to the IC. So they're filling the blind spots, whether it's the roof firefighter going to the roof, whether it's the OV firefighter going around the rear. We have p- people going in positions, and they are giving us the transmissions that fill out our 360 for us. Um, and again, that's because of our built environment. It's unrealistic for us to do that. So did I answer a full question? I may not have answered part of it. I love the answer, no matter no matter if you hit all of Dina's points. It's like a politician, right? right. Just, just answer your own question. Answer right. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but no, I think, uh, no, you answered it. I really do think that you're more of a, uh, when you were in that position, more of a hands-on in the front yard, in the poking your head inside, getting, yeah, getting your eyes on as opposed to setting up a command post. Although there are times when you may have needed to set up a command post and you would have done so. Yeah. And, and I would set it up. So my, my driver or um, the others that, you know, as, as additional commands get there, they'll start setting up um, the official command. So there'll be a command post, just whether I'm at it or not is the, is the challenge. Right. So, yeah. but they'll, they'll be one. Right. Um, my, my weakness was definitely that um, I wanted to, to at least peek my head in the house or, or, or the dwelling or whatever. Um, and, and not to be in there micromanage, right? Because my job is not to micromanage my people. Um, if, you know, if I'm in there doing what the company office should be doing, one of us aren't needed. Um, and it's probably me, right? So I need to be out where I, where I need to be uh, commanding the fire and let the company officer lead his, his firefighters and let the firefighters do their thing without the chief in their way. Wow, I love that clip. I, I, that's a quote I need to write down. Uh, someone please snip it that for me and send it to me. 9.17 p.m. my time. Uh, one of us isn't needed. Uh, okay. Chris Dye wants to know, how often do your guys set aside, set aside train specifically at station, burn buildings, acquired property, etc.? How often do they get to train? Well, so our, expect, our expectation is that every tour uh, for at least an hour, our people are training. That's in the firehouse, right? Um, and then when I was at training, and now and now the um, uh, chief Chuck Downey, who's there now, who's who's awesome, um, he's in charge of the fire academy and, and delivering a lot of these training to the field. Now, um, we our job is to facilitate the field, whether it's do our tips and training, get stuff out there for them to to help with the drill. We have a remote tactical training, which is. Um, uh, three times a day, Monday through Thursday. That's a live training that we broadcast out. We might be on location or at the fire academy, um, and our, our our people will will tune into that, watch it on the TV. That's like 15 minutes, and then they drill on it. And then we also call out. The, we bring the units to the fire academy, whether it's to the fire academy. Um, we also have a, uh, a training academy in Staten Island, and we have a smaller facility um, in the Rockaways in Queens. And I could take 20 units a day at a service at a time for training. So we, I try and come right to that line. And then I have mobile training units that go into firehouses to train. So our responsibility is to reach the firefighters um, as often as we can, delivering them training. If I'm bringing it to the fire academy, I better give you training that you can't get anywhere else, right? If I'm bringing, so live fire training, right. some type of demonstration that that I couldn't do in the field. If I could, if I could have left you in the firehouse and taught you, I should have did that. So when you come to the fire academy, you gotta be getting a different type of training that you can't get because otherwise leave in firefighters love to stay in quarters, right. And train in quarters. They don't, they'll drill all day long. They're in the firehouse because they don't want to miss a fire. Right. Right. So it's, it's uncanny how often they come out of service and they come to training. Right. Yes. And they I'm miss like, the first do. Yes. And they miss the first do. And, uh, you know, and then I'm like, sorry, sorry, th- sorry guys that you missed your fire today. 
And then it doesn't matter what I teach you today. You're pissed off that you missed the fire. And I, <laughs> I get that. But that's, you know, it's the type of people, that, that type A personality, get it done. You know, the salt of the earth people that are drawn to our profession, doesn't matter if you're in New York City or anywhere else, firefighters are a uh, are, are just a special, special breed of people. And Absolutely. we're so fortunate to work with the with, with people, like-minded people like that from, from all over the country. It's just great. Uh, I have to read this one to you. This is a great comment. It comes from Superbook Cartel. It comes from Kyle. He said, I have come to the conclusion that there is no way to rank the episodes of this podcast. Lately, the top five episodes are very difficult to pinpoint. What a great problem to have. So that's a huge compliment to you and to the podcast. So I, I wanted to read it because that really is a great thank you. Yeah, and that's and, and that's a compliment, honestly, to um to all the great people that are contributing to the to the American Fire Service today. Absolutely. Right. I mean, you know, I know you had Chris Stewart, my Stewart, good friend, yeah, last week. And, yes. I mean, Chris is awesome. I sp- I speak to Chris twice a week uh, about fires and stuff like that, and he's just. You know, you talk about him, uh, you know, before he left the Phoenix Fire Department, one of the last things he did was um, he helped develop their fire dynamics uh, bulletin that they put out. And, you know, I helped them greatly with that. I, um, I get it. You know, the FDNY gets an assist on that. And that's great. Right. The idea that Phoenix Fire Department and the FDNY can share and the FDNY and we share with uh, with the Philadelphia Fire Department and other fire departments like how could you how could you beat that right i mean that's that's what all this is about right the podcast and yes. like there's no reason like you could be the best you you want to it's up to you how good you want to be there's so much information out there today you know there's no excuse i don't know what to drill on you don't know what to drill on what, are you kidding me like i can't keep up the amount of books that i have that i have to read the amount of podcasts that i try and listen to there's so much good stuff out there um and we all matter to the fire service that's that's such an important message. Everybody has something to contribute, and it's just great stuff. As long as you're not, you know, teach what you know. If you don't know high rise, don't teach high rise, right? And and don't teach shit that's not safe. Um, right. And if you and if you're doing that, you know, there's so many there's so many good people out there doing great stuff, um, moving the fire service forward, leveraging technology, leveraging. It's just it's just great, you know. And in New York City, you talk about technology, right? We have the the Citizen app, and then we have our, uh, some of our, our buffs that, you know, the, and oh, um, absolutely. Right. So those guys are great. So we have a couple of them. Um, this guy, Skyler and Grogan, uh, Brian, Gro- there's, we have a bunch of them and I know I'm, I'm missing um, a whole bunch of their names as but always. Right. All just Every great time. People and several of them, they'll video our fires. And if they see something, they'll video something and they'll send me a clip from the scene. They'll send me a clip that we can train on. So the the beauty of the people that that I'm talking about, these 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 buff photographers in New York City, um, and they they you can subscribe to all of them on on uh, uh, on YouTube. The value of them is that they give a shit and they care about us. Nice. Right? And they're always trying to be helpful. And I get I tell these guys all the time. I said we're one team, and you're an important you're an important part of of our team and our family. But what they share with me, they're always sharing. They're always sharing stuff with us to make to make us better, and I appreciate that. And that's why I had to give a shout out to those, uh, to at least those two. Even though I screwed up, there's a bunch I should have. Absolutely. Every time you name you, I promise I, I do the same thing. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna forget so many people. Yes. Uh, how are you feeling, Chief? Are you good? I'm good. I got a list of questions. You got to tell me when you want to shut it down. So I'm I'm good. I mean, you know, I'm I'm good. Whatever. 
whatever you want to do. All right. This one comes from Jason Haynes. Very, very wide open question, but I want to hear your answer. Chief, what do you think is the biggest challenge in our profession today? Hmm. Wide open question. So the the biggest, so I, I'll say this, the greatest threat to our profession ever is cancer. That right now is the greatest threat to our profession. Um, we need to make sure that we're doing all we can to protect our firefighters, um, whether that's making sure that our gear is safe, whether it means we're wearing our SCBAs, um, whether it means that we're, we're cleaning our gear, uh, showering, all those, all those things that we need to do um, because we continue to lose way too many young firefighters. Um, I got an email today about two two firefighters uh, on my job. Um, one that was just diagnosed with ca- pancreatic cancer, um, and this guy has um, he's just he's one of the best. He's one of he's absolutely one of the best. Um, he's um, uh, he would have been chief of the department had he continued to study. Talk about a squared away guy into the job. He decided to stay as a captain. But he would have been chief of department. His leadership skills are incredible. Um, after I was deployed to Hurricane Harvey, and then we came back for two days and it went down to Florida. And when I was down in Florida, I got word that my sister passed away. And and this guy and and the other um, the other leader of the team, they came to my room and they stayed with me the entire night because it was late. I couldn't get a flight home. I mean, the leadership, the compassion, the empathy, mm. um, and um, uh, I heard about it the other day, but I got an update in an email today. And, and another guy who's a legendary um, member of our department who has been involved with, with rescues and, and, and stuff like that. Um, I was just told today that he's his the conventional treatment isn't working and he's moving on to experimental treatment. And these are young people. And um, we got to we got to figure this out because. I'm I'm tired of hearing these stories. I'm tired of losing my friends. Um, and these, you know, these are salt of the earth people. And um, I've been praying for them all day. And since, I, you know, since I've known they've been sick and um, we, we got to do better when it, when it comes to that. Um, and then transitioning from that, I think it's um, understanding the evolution of, of our procedures. And I know like, Chris Stewart, I think, knocked it out of the park last week on his pod- on a podcast where um, when he talked about some of the um, uh, some of the tactics and how um, and, and what's the what's the what's the where is the breakdown here? Right. And it's it's about the believing in them and understanding them and how they work. Right. So it's you know, when we talk about five dynamics, I think the question was, are we are we two to three or five to ten years behind? And. His answer was spot on. We're, we're not necessarily behind. We're, we're behind with the uh, understanding, right? So right. Um, we we believe what we believe. And so it's when we talk about that, right, I have to square your experience with the with, with what you're seeing. I have to explain that, right? So if I'm talking to a, someone who has 30 years on the fire, in the fire service and we're talking about, um, you know, I'm telling you that, that the water pushed the fire. Well, kind of explaining that to them, and you have to square their experience. There's people that have a ton of experience. In the FDNY, I have people that have gone to, literally to thousands of fires. 
So I have to square their experience with what they're seeing and explain to them, you know, because if, if, if I can't do that, if I can't, right. if I can't square their experience, then they're not going to believe anything I say, right? They can't get past that point. Right. So that, that, that in-depth explanation, right. On what's burning on what's happening the different things, the coordination of ventilation suppression, that understanding and squaring that experience is a critical part of the equation to make it where we where we know that we switch from not necessarily what we believe, but what, what we know. And we are in the enlightenment era of fire service research, whether it's health and wellness, cancer, um, fire dynamics, whatever it is, right? Um, and we need to take that and operationalize that in the in the best way. I think those are probably um, those are the two biggest things. I think is that that fire dynamics integration of that uh, is a, is something we got to get past. But the greatest threat is cancer in our profession. Phenomenal answer, man! What a uh, Andrew Feskins. Now we're getting personal here, so I, yeah, it's up to you whether how you answer this. As a firefighter, what was your favorite borough to work and your favorite company that you worked for? Yeah, so that's not fair. So that's that's like asking a parent what their favorite <laughs> child is, right? Right. Um, so there's nothing better than the nozzle. Right. So let's just okay. let's just end that right now. Anybody who says they'd rather have any other position has never had the nozzle at a good fire. Right. The nozzle is the best position on the fire ground. Period. That's, that that shouldn't even be open for discussion. Now, OK, OK. The backup position is fun. The officer, the engine officer, when you arrive first, because you get to force the door and you get to do other stuff is cool. Right. Um, when there's no truck there yet. Um, the irons in the can positions are really cool. Um, but, but Burroughs, oh my goodness. Uh, gee, I, I loved, I love the area where I was a battalion chief, the Elmhurst Eagles. Um, just because the companies, all of the companies in my battalion, I ran in with rescue squad, um, the rescue four, 288, um, 27, um, 136, 289, 138, 324, and 319. And 292. I don't know if I mentioned them, but uh, that was that was a great time. My experience in Squad 270 in South Queens as a firefighter. I mean, we we're going to fires, we we're going to jobs. So like, um, and that's where I was on September 11th. So I, I definitely have a special bond with with those uh, you know with those guys um, and girls. Um, where I was a captain in, in in Manhattan was great. I had great firefighters there that uh, um, that I, that I loved. I loved being I loved I loved being the chief of the fire academy and all the different things that we did there um, to raise the bar of training. Just building on the generations that came before us. You know, some of the legendary chiefs that we had, Tom Galvin and and uh, and Chief Mooney that we had there. Like, you know, those are guys that I looked up to and then there I was in their position. Um, and now to hear them compliment me, it's just, you know, um, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty humbling. But yeah, so I I you know, I gave you almost every company I ever worked in. I don't know if you realize that. <laughs> I love the answer, man. What a great answer! That's all. That almost goes up there with your earlier answer when when you said I'm going to be a politician here. Yeah, there's great firefighters. So there's great firefighters everywhere in New York City. Um, I remember I, I get assigned to the first division as a deputy chief in Lower Manhattan, and um, you know, so the first division when they go to fires. It's crazy fires, whether it's in Chinatown, Little Italy, or or high rise fire. I had a fire in the Oculus. I'm like, who has a fire in the Oculus? Um, and 
so um but I would go I went I would go to each firehouse and I went to every firehouse and and I would sit down at the table have a cup of coffee with them and I'd say I'd ask the junior guy or junior junior firefighter what do I need to know about your area um and the the knowledge that 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 firefighter would start out with and then and then I'd ask the senior firefighter to add on to it and in um in some of the areas I think and I'm going to I think I was in Fort Pitt, and I, I forget I forget the, the, all the numbers, but they brought out a book that they had on like every one of their buildings, and they're explaining to me that yeah, 40 years ago, or, you know, there used to be a road here, so these buildings were rear tenements. Now they're not. Like the the depth of knowledge from our firefighters, because that's a professional firefighter, right? A professional firefighter is a firefighter that's into the job, that's well trained, and when the yes. bell goes off, he knows what he's doing. Yes, it you know. Maybe you go to a lot of fires, but that doesn't define that you're a professional firefighter. Being ready to go and, and training and all those things, that defines professional firefighter. My volunteers, where I am a volunteer, those guys are professional firefighters, right? They're into the job. They know what they're doing, you know, and it's just that they, they have other jobs during the day. I think, it, and they all have a position to play. So shout out to Ken Lease and uh, Joe Lease. They're listening to this in Virginia. He's Joe Lease is a firefighter in Fairfax County. His dad's down there visit him. His dad's a volunteer with me. And um, so I had to get I had to get them in because he texted I me a while ago. But um, so our most recent chief of the department, Dwayne Welliver, he's a retired New York City police officer. Right. So he he went to uh, I went to high school with him in our high school year. But we have a picture of us on the back step of the apparatus uh, when we were on the tailboard. We wrote built the tailboard back then. But now um he understands his value, right? So at the incident command post, we had a fire in a um, in a commercial building a couple of weeks ago. So what does he do? He was the he's the most recent chief, so he knows what he's doing. So he goes to the command post and he helps command. So he almost becomes the aide, right? He becomes their driver Joe. Um and so there he is doing that. That's that's professionalism, right? Understanding where you where you fit. In in the volunteers, what we do with what we do with guys, they they become a they were a chief. Right. And now once you're no longer a chief, we have what's called fire police. So you go direct traffic and we put you like 85 miles down the block. So our most experienced guys that uh, or girls that were chiefs. Right. We now have them directing traffic. So we have this guy. He's got like 50 years in the fire department. um, Previous chief, this guy, Pat Walsh. He's always directing traffic. And I'm like, put this guy at the command post. This guy's got this guy's got so much experience. Right. Right. Let's. Utilize people where they where they best fit. So we spoke about that earlier with our firefighters in you know company drilling, right? Where we, where we where we that the importance of drilling with them, knowing their talents, right? That's the same with the volunteers, right? What does the guy do at work? Uh, you know, what does he do for a living? Right. Leverage that, right? He's an electrician, and now we go to an electrical emergency. Duh. You know, let's get him yeah. in here. And whatever That's- it is, you know. We could utilize the talents in many different ways, but when it comes to the chiefs, we put them down the road. But um, I said the most recent chief, Dwayne Welliver, he knows he goes to the command post and helps out. He, and our current chief, Scott Lewis, understands the value of putting him there. Just important, just little important things on how you operate more efficiently and safely, by the way. Right. No, absolutely. Brother. Uh, you mentioned Driver Joe, so I wanted to bring up that point because that's a topic I wanted to hit on this one, sure. not the next one. Driver Joe, how important? Uh, well, I gotta, you always got to talk about Driver Joe. Driver Joe, so 
a version of Driver Joe is critically important. So on scene, Driver Joe always has my blind spot. He always mm-hmm. understands what I need. He knows the leader's intent. He hears me talk about it every day, right? So when, when we're going to work or coming home from work or whether we're listening to music or we're listening to the podcast or truthfully, most of the time we're not talking at all because I'm busy working. I have my computer open, but, um, but he gets it, right? So he's, you know, he's got a lot of experience in New York City. He was a chief in my volunteer department, right? So he understands leadership. He understands fire ground management. Right. Right. And when I was a um, uh, when I was a lieutenant in 324 engine, he was a chauffeur in ladder 151. We ran in with him. And then when I was in the 4-6 battalion, he was a chauffeur there. So one to, to follow on to like Dina Ali's question earlier, I would get there. And a lot of times if the, if, the, if, if the chauffeur is on the turntable of the stick. Right. So. Whether it's Joe Wiz, Joe Tarantini, this or 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 there's so many others, right? I'm naming names, and this I have so many good guys that I could do that. Um, in in my other truck companies where I was a chief, where I'd say, "Hey Joe, um, what's going on?" And he'd be, and, and they just give you in ten seconds, they give you a snapshot of what's going on on the fire ground. Because now, because I could ask somebody inside what's going on, but he's out front. He sees everything, and I'm not clogging up the radio. I'm listening to what's going on, and he's telling me, yeah, Chief, it looks like we might have extension here. Uh, I just put the roof firefighter on the roof, whatever it is that, he, that he's got. But the truck chauffeur, they are some of the most experienced people um, in the FDNY. And when we talk about informal leadership, they're often they're guys that they probably didn't, you know, girls that they just decided not to study. It, you know, not everybody studies. Not everybody wants to be a boss. But these people, their knowledge, they are um, they are the informal leaders uh, in their in their companies, oftentimes. And they're the senior guys and girls, and and they're you know they'll fill the gap, and they're the free safety, understanding what's going on in the fire ground uh, in front of the building. Brother, I love it, man. I love it. Absolutely love it. Uh, Tony Nunez said, "Damn, Corley had to delete my question in mid sentence because he was asking about Driver Joe." And yeah, that, I could that... not, you know. Um, yeah, I couldn't not talk about Driver Joe. He's just so valuable um, to me personally. Driver Joe is is great, but but whether whatever version of him that you have in your department, they're just incredibly valuable. Mm, yes. Now you've already committed to coming back a second time, so I'm I'm confident uh, that I can. I, when I because I sometimes I just want to hold on and just keep squeezing. But no, 100%, you're going to have to come back because there's too many, there's like 1,500 questions waiting to be answered. And we we haven't even scratched the surface on what we wanted to talk about when I say wanted, what we plan to talk about. And so with all that being said, I'd love to ask this question. What books do you think firefighters should be reading or should read? Well, one of the most, one of the favorite books that I read recently is, um, Adam Grant, think again. Ooh, Power of yes. knowing what you don't know. Um, so when I when I read books, I write down the quotes in the books that I, that I like, and I probably wrote down like fifty quotes nice. from that book. Um, but there's there's so many there's so many good books. Whether it's firefighters, uh, I mean the Pass It On books that Billy Goldfeder, I think those are great for firefighters. Um, why buildings uh, stand up? Why buildings fall down? Two really good books. Um, more for someone who's going to be a chief officer. Um, I think those are really good. But uh, 
uh, Young Men in Fire. I, I just that's an enjoyable book I, that I liked about the Man Gulch Fire. There's so many, there's so many good books, uh, so many good books out there. Why buildings stand up? Why buildings fall down? Yeah, love it. No, no, I haven't heard those ones. Yeah, two part, two parts uh, series. No, seriously, I'm yeah. very intrigued. Here they are. I love it. No, yeah. Matthew. Yeah. Okay. One hundred percent. Yeah. Really kind of really good books. Yeah. Pass it on. Think again. Think again, Adam Grant. Of course, everything you said. No, one hundred. I love it, man. Okay. Uh, yeah. Smoothboard Cartel says he's got to come back. House tomorrow. Look for you, Chief. <laughs> <laughs> Three pages of unasked questions. Uh, no, without a doubt. No, there is. There is literally like so like. Uh, you're killing it, Chief, is all I'm saying. You're killing it. Uh, but we have a thing we do here on the Weekly Scrap. It is called the Five Questions for Firefighters, which after 120 episodes, we switched it to the next Five Questions for Firefighters. So the answers are 100% your opinion. There is no right or wrong. The points are assigned. They're arbitrary, and they're assigned by me and with the help of the audience. So my question for you, Chief Frank Lieb, are you ready for the next Five Questions for Firefighters? I am ready. Bring it. All right, here we go. Audience, help me score this. No pressure on Frank, myself, or the audience. Number one, what single characteristic makes the difference between a run-of-the-mill firefighter and the top-tier go-to badass firefighter? Love of a job. Being into the job, training, being the best version of yourself. That's the difference. If you love the job and you're into it, you that's... That, that makes you a badass firefighter. It makes you the best that you can be. It makes you ready when the bell goes off. Because there's nothing worse than, you know, here, here's the bottom line. The majority of firefighters in America will never encounter a victim in a fire. Isn't that unbelievable? We train for that every day. But the badass firefighters are ready. They're ready because you don't wake up one day and just be good. You're good because you dedicate yourself to the craft. So that dedication, that winning mindset, that being ready to go, that's what matters on game day. <laughs> Facts, Max, three fire emojis. Uh, majority will never face that. Dude, man, uh, 100%. Definitely max points. Tony, 100 points. I don't know what max is, so I'm just trying to be the black sheep. Uh, brother, yes, absolutely. Max point. They're still coming in with max points. Audience agrees with me. And... Max points. Number two, no pressure because you you set the bar pretty high on the first answer. If you could go back in time and give yourself one piece of advice as a rookie, what would it be? Enjoy the ride. It's going to be okay. Um, you're in the greatest profession on the planet, but make sure you take care of yourself. Make sure you wear your mask. Make sure you do everything you can to make it where you can live a long and healthy life well into retirement because your future self will thank you for the actions you take today. Brother, uh, I, 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 I didn't understand that when I was a kid. You know what I'm saying? No, we don't. I, I didn't. I, I abused the hell out of myself. Yes. As a firefighter. Right. Yes, I can't tell you how many overhauls and stuff where I'm just like, that hey, smells funny. I don't, I don't get it. I'm just going to keep hooking, whatever, you know. And I was in busy companies, right? So I, I would stay up all night. I would, 
I'd start the night tour. I'd come in at five o'clock. I'd have a cup of coffee. I'd go I'd, at six o'clock. I'd have a cup of coffee with, with my guys. As a chief, I would then go visit a company. I'd have another coffee at se- cup of coffee at seven o'clock. I would stay up till all hours of the night. Right. Um, and then I was like, yeah, we're going to go out. We're going to have five EMS runs. So I'm not even worried about sleeping. And I'd caffeine up for the whole tour. I, I really wouldn't sleep much. I'd go home. I'd be totally exhausted, not even realizing how much I was abusing myself. Dude, I love it. I love the so many little things like that. And then, and then, and that is the essence of the question: is what would you go back and tell yourself? And Kevin Bryan summed it up right here when he said, "Max, max, max points for be smart and safe, man. Be smart and safe." Yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry, Tony Leib said, "Wow, Leib three fifteen. Uh, absolutely. All right, number three. What is your favorite training drill?" My favorite training drill is probably, boy, I got a lot of them, but um, one of one of my favorites has to be drilling with the um, with the airbags, where you put a um, uh, a cup of water, and if you spill the water, it's like spilling the blood. And that was a drill that uh, Tom Richardson did with us, and um, we did it in the dark, um, and he would just have a flashlight, so he would see if the water spilled. Um, and that was something that he did with me as a as, as a young as a young firefighter. But there's so many good uh, there's so many good drills stretching the line. I mean, there's so many. But uh, yeah, it's I love that, it. that would have to be my favorite one. Just finesse and understanding and low visibility, all with the at the same time. Is that the whole? Yeah, just yeah, because chances are you're never going to need to use the airbags in a smoke filled environment, right? But uh, until you until you need to, and the idea is any of these out-of-the-box training ideas that it's not the first time you've seen them, right? So we would drill with the lifesaver rope evolution, um, you know, with our hood on backwards. So we we did it not seeing what we're doing. So that way, when you can see, you're on a, you're, you have a tactical advantage. Right? We did lots of drills like that where, um, where we wanted to be better. So we would train, you know, we would train with a 100-mile-an-hour fastball. That way we could hit the 80. Nice, nice. Joe Spin said, "Super Max, I will give Max on number three, which puts us to number four. What mistake have you learned the most from in your fire service career?" So that would have to go back to that fire um, that I had as a young firefighter, where I wasn't wearing my PPE mm. and I burnt my ears because I did burn my I burnt I wound up burning my ears. My captain burnt his ears as well, and um, uh, and he had his equipment on, you know, but I didn't. For, for part of it so it's um yeah make sure that you're you're wearing that you make sure that you're always wearing your ppe properly that because that that makes sure that you're not the weakest link when you do that no it's easy and i you like i said you will never you will never find me not wearing all of my equipment properly never no and and the impact it had on you then and the consistency of the message Max points four for four, which takes us, which strangely enough, I feel like I know the answer because of your vehemence earlier in your answer. But number five is the question. It is heavy fire and searchable space. Would you rather be assigned to the nozzle or first in on VES? It is always about the nozzle. It is always about, it is always about being on, on the nozzle, right? Putting out the fire Ensures and secures survivable space. Um, and, you know, 
and getting in and getting after, in there after it and uh, in searching. Because if the fire is if the fire is big enough, right? Where's the search team? They're behind the engine, right? They're, they're, so newsflash: the truck company's skin burns at the same temperature mine does. So they they can't get in there if the fire is severe. But it's always about putting the fire out. It's always about having the nozzle and securing it and, and making sure that we have survivable, searchable space afterwards. I knew the answer because the early yeah. I felt like I felt like it would have been disingenuous if it if it wasn't that, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But one hundred percent, brother. You That's just a no brainer, bro. <laughs> Kevin Bryan said ensure and secure max points. Mic drop. Max points for question five already. <laughs> and that's what I was going to say. I was like, on number five, I could just see Kyle's smile. So I already knew I was giving you five uh, uh, max points on question five. And he said, one coupon for a long, uncomfortable hug from a Texan goes to you, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> Brother, absolutely. There it is. The five questions for firefighters, according to Chief Frank Lieb, with max points five for five. My friend, how can people reach out to you if they want to reach out to you, uh, make contact with you? book a, a, a just in general reach out to you yeah so um yeah i'm on uh, i'm on social media so uh whether it's uh, fire frank 76 on on twitter uh frank lieb on linkedin um or first responder consultant at uh at gmail um at gmail.com is my email address and yeah three three different good ways to reach out to me Beautiful, brother. Beautiful. I'm so excited. I can't, I don't know when I get to see you again, but I'm super excited about it. And all of that officially makes this number 183 in the books. My friend, Chief Frank Leap, absolutely destroying it with the best part being he's already agreed to come back. So uh, whether he realized it or not, um, here we go. With that being said, I want to show off my, the, the, the standard coin, the red and black, and this one, which I'm super proud of the blackout coin. Oh, upside down. The blackout coin, if it'll snap into focus eventually. But on the backside, it is all about the vigilantes. They're individually numbered. The lights are just too bright. There we go. Anyway, there's only 150 of those coins in existence, and they will be going out to the vigilantes that have joined up, and, and I'm super stoked about them going out. So if you joined up, they're going out sequentially as you hit your one-year anniversary. With all that being said, uh, the scrap killer lineup continues coming up. I mean, it was Chris Stewart last week, Frank Lieb this week, Rob Ramirez and the Mayday Mindset is coming up following this. And then Mega Scrap Delta, the fourth Mega Scrap, all about building construction and the roof pervs. And it just goes on from there. So I'm super excited about the future of the scrap. Uh, super excited about the current scrap. And uh, with all that being said, Chief, thank you for giving me your evening. Thank you, my brother. Appreciate the opportunity to come on your show. Audience, uh, you guys completely, as always, hijacked everything we plan to talk about and made it amazing. So thank you for the amazing questions. Uh, throwing them at a Chief. And Chief, thank you for crushing the questions each and every one. They were great one. questions. We didn't get to like, we got to like two things that we, that two, yes, right? Two. But um, the questions were, were top notch. They were really good questions. So I appreciate that. Like I said, I could come on and talk tactics. We don't have to have anything to talk about. The the audience is pretty good at coming up with what they want to talk about. And that, that was awesome. 
I'm pretty sure that uh, I don't know if the audience or me are more excited about the fact that you've agreed already to come back. So it's going to be amazing. Uh, Thank you, audience. And Frank, thank you. Audience, thank you. Uh, You guys make the scrap magical. I hope the tone stays silent unless it is burning. Everybody stay safe out there. Thanks for listening to the Weekly Scrap. Please subscribe and please share. We'll see you at the next episode.